Welcome to Better Words, a podcast for readers who want to know the stories behind the pages. We're your hosts, Caitlin and Michelle, two book nerds who bring you in-depth conversations about writing and publishing from those on the inside. Basically, we're just here to talk about books. We're so glad you're joining us. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Better Words. We hope you're enjoying this new season. Um, And we've just got so much more to share. We're so excited. We can't keep saying that we're so excited in every episode, though. So let's just kick this off. Michelle, what have you been reading lately? Well, I've been in a bit of a funny sort of not really finishing many books. I'm finding it very hard to concentrate at the moment. Do you ever have times like that? I mean, yeah. I'm halfway through two books right now as well. So I mean, I'm about halfway through like nine books. So that's how it's going at the moment. (laughs) But something that I did finish recently, uh, which was really, really helpful. And I, I thought I haven't recommended nonfiction for a while on the podcast. So I am going to recommend The Science of Storytelling by Will Storr. And this was something that I started reading ages ago. um, And I genuinely found it very, very helpful. I was underlining lots and lots of bits. um, And then I sort of put it on the back burner for a bit, but I've had to write a short story for university So I pulled it back out and was finishing it off and the final bit is some really, really helpful exercises about developing character and characterization and stuff like that, which I just found so incredibly helpful when I was sitting, staring at a blank page, trying to figure out how to write a short story. (laughs) So is it kind of like a a workbooky type, how-to type of nonfiction or is it? Not really. So the the Just whole some helpful book, tips thrown in in the middle. Yes. Yeah. So like, I guess the main thing is it helps you understand how our brains work. So it's a combination of like writing instruction and and analysis and neuroscience. So basically explaining why we as humans crave stories, and then deconstructing a lot of popular fiction to explain how these concepts work in fiction and then right at the end um, there's a few exercises he recommends for like ask yourself these questions write this scene to develop character if that's what you're doing but if you're just interested as a reader um, then this book is still really really interesting and so that's what I was going to say it's um, it's great for people who want to be writers and who want to be better writers but if you just love reading like we do and you just sort of want to understand a little bit more about why certain things happen in books and make us feel certain ways then this is a really really good explanation of that and I mean whenever I think of okay I said it's got neuroscience in it but it is not sciencey it's really easy to read and the chapters are broken up really, really small so that um, you can just sit down and just look at that one little bit and it's not overwhelming at all. So definitely recommend to all the creative types who who listen to this podcast. That sounds very interesting. I have to say that is something that I struggle with 
nonfiction sometimes is mm. like longer chapters because I find it a bit harder to get really like sunk in to a non you know like how you get so wrapped up in a novel that you just can't put it down I don't really think that happens with nonfiction, not for me anyway yeah, I mean, I find that happens for me with something like memoir, which is... Yeah, I guess is more narrative. It, yeah, it is more narrative, but with a book like this where it's more instructional, informative, definitely the fear I think a lot of people probably have is that same thing of like, it's going to be really boring. But I mean, it would be really bad if his book was really boring when he's telling you how storytelling works. So he obviously uses those techniques and stuff, but he literally takes you through like, why our brains love stories so if that's ever interested you then then that is brilliant and actually I'm going to do a cheeky second recommendation as an as an extra to that if you also like me have your own business or you want to know a bit more about how story works in marketing then there is another book called Building a Story Brand by Donald Miller that I read at about the same time and so there is some crossover there and building a story brand is very much like you would love it, Caitlin. It's very practical tips um, of how to incorporate storytelling into your brand marketing. Um, so they sort of work hand in hand. But yeah, it was it was interesting to read that paired back more instructional version of storytelling with understanding like the science behind why our brains love stories so yeah those I mean just had to throw in that second recommendation in there um but yeah science of storytelling by Will Storr I found it very helpful yes well at the I say at the moment I feel like this has been going on pretty much all year where I have just really gravitated towards really fun romantic sugary reads yeah <laughs> yeah because they're just so easy and they'll have a happy ending and they're fun so last weekend I read all of Love Struck by Bronwyn Sell in about two days well in two days I started it on Saturday afternoon and I'd finished it by like three o'clock on Sunday you know how like some women's fiction, like I guess we're going to call it, is actually like quite large. Like this one is like 500 pages and I read it in like a day, essentially 24 hours. But oh, it was so much fun. So essentially the storyline is, uh, takes place mostly at a family wedding at a family resort on an island in the Whitsundays. So one of our main characters, Amy, is at her father's wedding and her father's fiance's son arrives and they have an instant attraction, but they're about to be step-siblings. So they're both <laughs> denying it to everyone and, like, her sister is, like, teasing her and he is known as, like, a bit of a player in his family. So his dad is, like don't mess this up. We've got like a, this is a really good family that we're joining. And so there's, you can imagine a whole week of antics. And then the parallel storyline is one of the cousins at the wedding 
who works at the resort, the family-owned resort, um, ends up befriending um, a woman who is on her honeymoon alone after her fiancé dumped her right before their wedding. And they, like, become friends and everything like that. And then so for most of the book is this week where everyone is like, what's up with you and the bride? Or what's up with you and the brother? And and then it skips ahead at the end to like a few months later and they all end up back at the resort for Christmas and they all get together. It's a very happy ending, but it is such a fun read. And the whole cast of the whole family is like if the Proudmans from Offspring were in the Sundays. Oh my gosh, I need to read this. It sounds wonderful. That sounds amazing. But it is just truly such a good, like it would be such a good beach read. Like I read for a little bit, I think just like in my lounge room or something, and then I had to go out on the balcony because it was a bit sunny and I was just like, I'm just going to pretend that I'm at the beach in the sun reading this book. Oh, this sounds wonderful. Yeah. I'm just desperate to get back to the beach now. I'm ready for summer to arrive. Oh, yeah. I was like, why haven't you been at the beach? I forgot. It's been cold. (laughs) Oh, I forgot. Um, I'm so into into the Northern Hemisphere now. I forgot. (laughs) We're getting like a last flush of summer here in the UK. And it's it's been really nice, but it's basically comparable to Rocky in winter where it's like quite chilly in the mornings but then during the day I've been able to eat lunch in in the sun um but then literally every day is different and I was saying to my I was on the phone the other day to my friend Jasmine and I I like to have a walk when I am on the phone sometimes if someone rings me I'm like I'll just I'll just use this as an excuse to exercise And so I was walking outside and it had been really lovely and sunny during the day. And I just had a cardigan on and a t-shirt and I walked outside and I was like, oh, I have underestimated this. (laughs) And Jasmine was like, I've lived here for 25 years and I still constantly underestimate the weather. So um, I think, I mean, people always joke about Melbourne being four seasons in one day, but literally that's, that's what it's like here, especially at the moment is like, you cannot judge right now these in-between seasons like in winter at least you're like I know it's going to be freezing cold so I exactly it's reliable whereas now I'm like oh it looks so lovely outside and then I walk out and I'm like oh underestimated this (laughs) I know I had the same thing yesterday actually in the morning you know I like got dressed and I put on like um like a short sleeve top and like denim shorts and was happy in that all day and then in mid-afternoon I was like I'm gonna get a cardigan and then I had to change into jeans (laughs) I was like just completely different than this morning oh so weird anyway that's enough weather chat enjoy our episode I had lots of fun doing this because there's some fairy stories in there and some a little bit of magic and yeah it's 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 really it's a really fun interesting episode so enjoy
Our guest this week grew up in Leeds in the north of England and moved to London in her 20s to start an acting career. She studied at a renowned French theatre school and then went on to create her own theatre company. Now her debut novel, A Girl Made of Air, is being published and we are so excited to welcome you to Better Words, Nadia Hetherington. Hello, thank you. I'm excited to be here. It's wonderful to have you joining us to chat about this book. Congratulations as well on the publication. It's a really beautiful story and it's this really lovely sort of strange mix of historical fiction and magic and folklore and mystery and it's been described as perfect for fans of Angela Carter and Erin Morgenstern um, and that that must be amazing as a debut author to have that sort of feedback as well. Incredible. (laughs) It's, yeah, it's a bit scary, but incredible, obviously, yeah. So I believe the novel was partially inspired by the fairy tales and folklore stories that you were told during your childhood. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? So um, when I was a very small child, a kind of baby, really, we moved to the Isle of Man. So... My parents were from Liverpool and the Isle of Man was a place where lots of Liverpudlian families would go on holiday. Um, this was in the um, 1970s, so very, very long time ago. And my mum always wanted to move there. So we moved there and we lived in a little flat just opposite the sea and opposite Bradder Head, which is this like kind of headland with a folly on the top. And so sort of my very first memories of life are looking out of this big bay window and looking over the sea and through the mists up into the folly. And the big thing about the island are the stories of the fairies. And they're really important stories. So as a very small child, I was fed all these stories about the fairies and I became slightly obsessed with them and I was really really small and I could only just really speak but my big thing was was the fairies and there's there's a a bridge called fairy bridge on the island and and the fairies live under the bridge and when you go over the bridge you have to acknowledge them otherwise something dreadful will happen to you you wave your hand you say hello you say evai voni veg which is um, manx for good day little people you know and you you just acknowledge them but I decided that I needed my own fairy bridge so I had one just near our, our our flat um, near Bradder Head, which wasn't a fairy bridge at all, but I decided it was. So I became quite obsessed. And so all of these um, folk tales, they're all bar maybe one, which is, I think, almost completely made up. Most of them are based on real Manx folklore and um, folk tales which were collected in the 1800s by a lady called Sophia Morrison. So she collected them orally and just wrote them down as as the Manx people spoke them to her and I've had these I've had some of um, these books with her tales in for years and years and years and I've always wanted to do something with them and so yeah for me when I was thinking about writing my first novel they were the first thing that came to my head that's what I want to do I want to do something with these tales that have been with me for so long and that fed my imagination so much so that's where they're from yeah so there is a lot of that obviously woven through the story. So the way that you tell the the stories in the novel, is that how you were told them as a child? No, not necessarily. No. The fair the, so the, the folk stories, you were just told about the fairies. They're often called themselves or the little people. And you know, it's like, oh be careful, 
or the fairies will come for you or be careful because they're, they're not fairies as in the pretty little, you know, tinkerbells. They're <laughs> usually little men in red coats and they're very, very mischievous. So you have to be careful. Otherwise, um, they'll come and do you some mischief or other. Or like play a trick on you or something like that. Exactly. They're tricksters. They're <laughs> real tricksters. So it was more like, oh, you know, oh, that'll be the fairy. So if and if you did something naughty and then your mum found out, you'll say it wasn't me, it was the fairies. So that's how <laughs> I was told the stories of the fairies. So what I wasn't really told those particular folk stories that I that, that I've included, that I've retold and reimagined and included in the book. They're just things that I've collected since I was re a teenager, really, um, just because I've always had this interest in the Manx fairies and Manx folklore. And so they've just been around sort of my bedroom as a teenager and stuff and just fed my interest. But Bradderhead, that, that's the one in the book where it's about a woman's voice, isn't it? So Bradderhead, no, Bradderhead, that, that's the Barul. That's where Mananan ah. McLear came from originally, the mountain of Barul. Bradderhead is where Serendipity. Wilson is um, taken to be strung up I'm not saying anymore and that's what I could see from my window so and strangely enough that that section that particular chapter is the first thing I wrote for the book it was the very first thing I wrote and I thought it was a short story um, and I wrote it on the top of a double-decker bus in a, in a notebook and I got off the bus and I thought oh I like this I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go home and type this up and see what I can do. So although the novel ended up being about someone different and something different, that, that original story played a big part in where it was going to go and, and how the folklore was going to um, be involved and be threaded through the novel. Wonderful. Actually, just on that as well, like there's so many different elements in the stories and, and stories within stories that are threaded through. I'm really interested, how extensively did you plot that all out? And was it hard to keep track of, you know, which pieces were where? So I didn't plot it out at all. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I just, I just wrote them. So it was a funny experience um, and a really interesting experience. So I started writing the novel when I started doing a degree in creative writing at Birkbeck University in London. So um, I lived in Paris for 10 years. I came back. Um, I'd been doing theatre all that time. And when I came back, I obviously wasn't doing theatre anymore because, you know, I'd left my company behind, left all the people I knew in theatre behind. So I started um, writing. I went to Birkbeck because I thought I'll do a creative writing degree and that will tell me whether I want to write or not. And then I wrote this story pretty much in the first year that I was at Birkbeck. It was a four year course because I did it part time. So it was really long. So I wrote the stories ad hocly for kind of assignments for my fiction classes. So I did very many different modules, poetry, theatre, fiction, script writing. And when it came to my fiction classes, I would ad hocly write another bit that I decided and said out loud, because if I said it out loud, I'd have to do it, was going to be a novel. And so I wrote all these pieces, which were almost separate stories, but with a kind of 
idea of a thread through them. So that's why there are so many different stories, I think, is because I, I, I wrote them so ad hocly and then kind of put them together later. It was always going to be a novel, but um, sometimes one section would be written months and months and months and months before I got onto a different chapter or a different section. So, yes. What an interesting way for a novel to sort of come together. I don't think we've ever heard anything like that before, where it's all sort of separate things and then you just, for lack of a better word, chucked it all together. (laughs) I did kind of just throw it all together. But, I mean, it was a bit more than that because it took years. I mean, it did take years. So the novel took me six years to write. So four years of doing all the sort of, assignments some of which so for my dissertation for example I did like three chapters of the book so those three chapters were always going to be together as those three chapters by the time I graduated the book wasn't finished so then I needed to finish the book so that took another two years of sort of writing I was working obviously at the time as well but writing and bringing it all together. So it took six years to write all together. I think, could we, could you give us a bit of context then for people who haven't read the book yet, the way that it works and the way the story works and the reason why writing it in that way means that it still forms quite a complete story because people might be wondering how, how that all works. So the stories are anchored. My idea was that um, they need an anchor So the anchor is the narrator who is telling her stories sat at a very particular desk in a very particular room in a very particular space. And we keep coming back to her and she's telling her stories through um, basically rewriting diaries or notes she's found in books or letters she has and just... um, you know, sticking them down on a new page. So it's almost like she's giving them new life as well. And it's also as if she's taking away the power that they had over her. If she takes them off the old pages and puts them onto new paper, she types them up, then it's almost like she's taking away um, their power. She's laundering them. She's laundering the words by rewriting them in a way. So all the way through, so so the narrator is the voice we hear all the way through and she is anchored in one particular space all the way through the book. And I thought that was a really important thing to do so that everything hangs on her. So they're not ad hoc and they're not just thrown together. In fact, they're, they're very carefully put together by this specific person in this very specific place. So I made it, I thought it was important to really describe the room that she sat in, for example. So at the beginning of the book, I go into quite a lot of detail into where she is and where she sat and what she's wearing, because I wanted the reader to be always be able to go back to her and have that anchor so they're not floating off in all these stories because then that would be disastrous and you wouldn't be able it would be unreadable so that was the idea behind that so the stories are all anchored through this one narrator and we know where she is hopefully we can see her in our mind's eye because she's described and yeah and she talks about as also she puts her little you know two penneth worth in she talks about her process so she's talking about her process of rewriting her life, if you like, as well. Mm, it's really unusual, but in the nicest possible way. <laughs> it's very different 
uh, form from anything else that I've read. And I really enjoyed that about it. That, oh, I'm, I'm so pleased. I mean, I got the idea actually um, from Gunter Grass from The Tin Drum. I don't know if you know the, the, the novel The Tin Drum. It's an amazing novel. It's an incredible novel. I, I mean, it, it's a very intelligent um, piece of work. And I read that a few years ago um, when I first came back from Paris, actually, it was one of the first novels that um, I sat down and read. I mean, it's a very, very, very different book. It's a political allegory and um, all of this kind of stuff. But it's all a, a selection of stories of this person's life. And that person is your anchor. And that person is in, the, is in um, a mental institution attached to a bed but they're writing their life and they're going through all the stories of, of, of their life. So, yes, it's a, it, that's kind of where I got the idea from. I pinched it. I stole the idea of this anchoring down of the narrator. But there are several other people that I've done that as well, I think. Um, one of my favourite books ever is Geek Love by Catherine Dunn. I mean, that's, she does that to a certain extent as well. You know, our narrator is, is, is our anchor again, you know, telling her stories to, to her daughter, who her daughter doesn't know it's her anyway. It's an old, well-used way of doing things, actually, I think. It's interesting just hearing you explain it sort of that way makes so much more sense because so many other novels you know sort of do that thing where you're with the main character and even if most of the story is set in their present you do learn things about the past and you know other things or perhaps step away slightly out of the situation but I've never had a very good way to explain that and you just did so well Oh, good. <laughs> it's just this idea, this sort of almost sort of obsession that I, I got with um, you need to anchor the story down, you know. It, and it did become quite obsessional because because as, as you've pointed out, there, there are stories within stories within stories and it goes all over the place. And it came this like obsession that I need to sort this out and the only way to do it. And, um, and I think it, it, it must be, and I think because I'm writing another book now, I'm a, I'm very aware of of that being a part of it as well. You need to anchor your story, and um, or at least I do. You know, so I'm sure other other writers go through the some very similar feelings. You know, I should imagine. Well, a a girl made of air largely takes place in circuses and really sort of takes people behind you know, that curtain, the mystery and everything of the performance and the magic and everything that's going on there. So. Why did you want to sort of go into that space and behind the curtain of performance? So I've been a performer most of my life. That's been that was been that's been my um, my passion and my job for most of my life. And I've been a performer since I was in my late teens, early twenties. And then I went on to work in physical theatre mainly in my late twenties, and I moved to Paris to train at the Jacques Lecoq school which is um very well known in the theater world as being is very very prestigious and very well known because he has a very particular way of working which is taken from um the commedia dell'arte but it's not commedia dell'arte it's based on the idea of clowning and all that kind of stuff so when you go into physical theater there's an obvious link all of a sudden between something like the circus because you're you're pulling down the spectacle to its bare bones 
So you're no longer getting into psychological drama or anything like that. You're pulling down the spectacle to its bare bones. So you could go into an empty space um, and be wearing nothing but, you know, a black T-shirt and black leggings and create an amazing piece of, of theatre. And I think it's the same for circus. You know, they use just their bodies quite often because you're looking at the ultimate sort of bare bones spectacle. But then... What do you do? You put glitter on it. You throw glitter at it and feathers and um, and make it fabulous. Exactly, exactly. But because I've been involved in theatre for so long and um, I, I have been in many, many, many really hideous, quite smelly, awful dressing rooms and then you go and the theatre is beautiful and, you know, it's interesting because... I mean, for me, it's been a part of my life for so many years, but most people don't see that. It's kind of nice to show them. It's like, I can show you what it's like back there. It stinks. <laughs> the toilets are overflowing. It's awful. You know, so it's kind of nice to open that curtain. And as far as the circus goes, I've always loved a circus. I mean, I don't know any child that doesn't. And, and also... To go with that, you've got running away with the circus, the idea of the outsider. You know, it's the ultimate outsider story. They're kind of living in the circus. So that's really, really, as somebody who's always, I don't know, do we all feel like outsiders? I've always felt like an outsider. And I wonder if, do, I'm not special in that, am I? Everybody feels like an outsider. <laughs> I, I think, think every single person in the world thinks that they are an outsider. And I think that's so. probably what makes none of us outsiders. Yeah. I think that's true I think that's true so I kind of wanted to explore that as well and yes there's absolutely definitely a link between the physical theatre training I had and the physical theatre work I I I did and the sort of circus aesthetic certainly um, I did um theatre festivals when I lived in 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 France we did theatre festivals based in like you know tents and I wouldn't say big tops because they weren't big enough to be big taps but you know that sort of thing with um, circus performers and there's a crossover between physical theatre and circus performing definitely and of course you know theatre clowning you have your red nose I've got my red noses just here you know you have your red nose you you know clowning is that even though it's not strictly speaking the same as a circus clown it's something a little bit more um involved you know everybody has their own clown within them and the training that I did and the work I did was that search for your inner clown (laughs) (laughs) wanting to go back to like year 10 drama when I did committee for latte (laughs) to warm my drama blacks in the room and Oh God, miss it. <laughs> Absolutely. It's great. It's a great it's a great um search for creativity. Always my favourite subject. And I've always wanted to run away with the circus. <laughs> <laughs> and you can now, you can do aerial artistry. You can, I, yeah. Theoretically I can, yes. I have done aerial hoop and silk for the past couple of years, but I fear that I have lost all of my strength and flexibility while not being able to train during this uh, time but maybe one day speaking of you know circuses and sort of the whole idea of freak shows and things like that what sort of extra research did you have to do when you were writing the novel into the history of those sorts of things yeah I read books I got the books out I read the books I knew a little bit about it already because um 
um i've always i've really always been interested in um circus and freak shows it's just been a thing throughout you know my life we have our little interests um so i already had quite a few books on the subject and i was interested in coney island and the performers there because one of my favorite films from way back was um todd browning's freaks it's an absolutely wonderful film I can't remember what year it was made. I'm thinking late 20s, early 30s, 1920s, early 30s. And I'm not going to say any more than that because I don't want to give anything of the story away of Freaks. Um, but anyway, a, a, it, it's a cult classic, this film. It's a cult classic. And the performers who were in Todd Browning's Freaks were all freak show performers. And they became quite big sort of Hollywood stars in their own right after that film came out, um, you know, and went on to sort of make money and stuff. So some of those people are mentioned in the book and sort of the freaks that I mentioned in the book are all real people as well. And I thought that was really important. I didn't, I, I didn't want to just make people up because, you know, it's a really, it's a really... It, difficult part of history isn't it because you're looking at people who obviously had incredible challenges in their lives you know and certainly the the actors of Todd Browning's Freaks went to make themselves decent careers and made I think most of them were all right financially after that but I mean I mean these people just went through terrible hardships and thank goodness the world has changed for the better as far as um, recognizing disability is concerned and, and things like that so it's a so it's a little bit of a difficult subject especially for someone who is sort of I mean I don't know how you say it, sort of body normative you know I I don't have any disabilities I you know so I don't want to be that kind of um, person who's just like staring and watching people. I want to sort of understand people's lives and um, understand, you know, how they had to live. So I did do quite a lot of sort of research about their lives and did just retell their stories, really. You know, and it's a tiny little bit of the book. So it doesn't really go too much in because that. So, so there's a book of freaks within my book. And they're looking at this book of freaks and they're talking about each each of these freaks, you know, these circus performers, these freak show performers. And um, so, like I said, they were real people with real lives. And I've just I've just retold very briefly their stories. But I think that's amazing that there is, you know, paying homage to those people. And like you said, not just making up new people, but actually recognising that these people lived and there was a history and the the wrongs around that as well which I think I think it's a conversation people are probably a bit more aware of now after you know the greatest showman and there's been criticism of that there's been praise for it different aspects but I think that overall that made people more aware of this probably darker history that people just hadn't heard of before um, so I think that it's probably good to see that explored. Now people have had that like mainstream introduction to it a little bit and it is more recognisable for them to then read that and know that these people were real. I think that's wonderful. Certainly in Coney Island, that's got a, a really rich history of sideshows. And that's why I wanted my character to go to, to Coney Island to experience that for herself. 
Um, it's an amazingly interesting place because we were talking earlier about um, um, the class system in Britain. But I mean, when you go to Coney Island, it's very interesting part of um, sort of the American class system because it was a very, very working class kind of area. And yet it held what was the only theme park in, in that part of America for, for, for a very, very long time. You had Dreamland and then you had Astroland and, you know, it became like the place where everybody, certainly working class people, went on holiday. Um, but then it very soon got run down, like all these places did. It's, it's an incredibly interesting and rich history. And, you know, you could just go on forever looking into these stories of these people who 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 have lived there. And, and it's also got connections to Donald Trump because um, his father built a big, um, had a, a big sort of um, building. Uh, they sort of bought loads of land up and built loads of um, sort of tenement housing, but he didn't allow any non-white people to live there, for example. So there are, there are, Woody Guthrie lived there. He lived in Donald Trump's father's housing complex in Coney Island. So this is a massively interesting history that all and it all links back as well to um, the boardwalk and dreamland and astroland and everything that was going on, the glitz and glamour of the of the sideshows. And again, like we were talking before about, you know, the what's behind the curtain as well. It, it's incredibly rich in history. So it was really interesting. So I did all this research, mainly reading books, to be honest. I've just got stacks and stacks of books about early circus in Britain, early circus in America and the side show, then going on to the side show and the freak show and all that kind of stuff. I sought out loads of photographs as well because photographs are sometimes, you know, speak a thousand words. And that, that was really interesting, you know, to look at all these old photographs. And, and then I went to Coney Island and then I just thought um, I must go. So my husband and I went to Coney Island after I'd written all that whole section. And it was so weird because I'd been using Google Maps to kind of walk around Coney Island. So I kind of knew all the streets, but obviously I'd never been. At one point I stood out. So there's there's one sort of bar which still calls itself the Coney Island um, Freak Show. And it still puts on things like it's got like um, people who do sword dancing and snake dancing and, you know, tattooed ladies and things like that. Like like the circus of horrors type things, I suppose. And I literally I stood outside there and, um, and just burst into tears. It was so emotional. And, you know, so, you know, we went on the cyclone, which is the big wooden roller coaster built in the in the 1920s and it was just really moving because I'd spent years I I go on that. <laughs> oh, it was crazy oh my god it was crazy but I had to go on it I had to you know it's like when am I going to be here again who knows what is it like now so it's 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 like any seaside resort so a little bit run down for the most part but then it's got a lot of really whiz bang expensive rides you know, because it's still a big fairground, fairground upon fairground. So all the big, expensive, you know, things with flashing lights, shiny, shiny flashing lights, goes very fast. I wouldn't go near them type thing. But then it's still got Nathan's hot dogs, which is like one of the most important things about Coney, Coney Island. They called them um, Coney Island cav caviar, where hot dogs and Nathan's hot dogs are the first place to open there. So they've still, so Nathan's still exist. So there are these little sort of um, historical sort of, 
pinpoints around Coney Island. You've still got the old parachute jump, which is this crazy looking, very, very tall tower, which is made, which looks like a large cage and it's bright red. And it was actually made for the military to train um, soldiers to parachute. That's what it originally was. Um, it soon got integrated into the sort of funfair element and became a ride, parachute jump ride. Uh, but it hasn't worked now for, for years and years and years. So this this sort of this kind of skeleton of this big wire, almost sort of tower sort of looms over um, Coney Island. And I like I said, I found it really, really touching because I'd read so much about it and I'd seen all these photographs and I'd walked around Google Maps and I'd been writing about this place and my character had been living there, you know, and she had such an important relationship to this place. It was incredible to actually go there and, uh, yeah, it was really moving. I spent a lot of time in tears, ridiculously, you know. Wow. Oh, yeah, that must have been such a strange experience. When did you go there, like in your writing, publishing journey so I'd finished writing the book but I don't think I had did I have an agent by then I'm not sure I even had an agent by then I may have got my agent but we were waiting to see if we could get published something like that yeah right. it was, it was a... just so interested in everything by then that you had to go yeah it was really funny we were in a, a Manhattan and we were walking down Delancey Street and I said to my husband oh yeah so if you just turn there well that's the apartment that my, you know the narrator lives in and that's where she's writing the book and he turned to me and he went you know she's not real and I was like oh yeah <laughs> I've like, been yeah. living with her all this time yeah. yeah I can see why it became such an obsession for you because once you do start talking about it, it just I I want to know more now yeah. I I need, I need like a podcast or something on every single person that once lived there like I want to read all the books and stuff now so I can imagine it just must have been a complete obsession for you over that time that you were writing that's amazing yeah, it did. It did take over a little bit, which is not a bad thing, I don't think, you know. Um, I like being taken over by things. It's lovely to, you know, feel so engulfed by um, thoughts and, and, you know, it's like when you read a really, really good book and you just can't put it down and you're just so immersed in it. I just love that. I love being immersed in, in, in something. So, yeah, me too. <laughs> it's a nice feeling. So you did mention before that you are writing more. So what are you working on at the moment? Has everything else that's going on in the world affected your creativity or your writing process? So it has um, very much so. I found, I have to admit, I found it really difficult. So so I've, I've been writing for about, about a year and a half. I've been writing my second novel and I got to about halfway through and then all this stuff happened, this pandemic yeah. business. And I just couldn't do it anymore and I just put it away. So to be perfectly honest, I I've, I've, I've picked it up again now, but only in the past couple of weeks. I literally had to put it away because I just felt that everything that was going on here, I couldn't relate to my own work anymore because it, it, it it's based in 1999 at the turn of the millennium and so I felt so distanced from that when the pandemic sort of hit and everything it, I just thought what am I doing this for what's this for why bother you know and I, I, I find it really difficult I mean I've been shielding as well so that oh, means wow. that I literally didn't go out of the flat for four months not even step outside for a walk 
um, because I have rheumatoid arthritis and I'm on um, very heavy immune suppressant drugs. So, yeah, so I've been shielding because I was like one of the kind of really vulnerable sort of people. So, yeah, I just I found I found it really difficult. And um, the anxiety of these times and the panic of these times and just the sheer weirdness of it all. I just I just found I couldn't I couldn't relate to what I was writing to about anymore. So I put it to one side and for a while I didn't write anything and I just felt really lost. And then um, I've got a window just here and outside my window there are a couple of um, silver birch trees and I could hear their leaves kind of sort of rustling and stuff. And I thought, I'm going to write a little story about this, this, this tree here. And then I started writing these little stories about trees and I got a little bit obsessed about trees then and I bought a few books about trees and was like, I need to know everything about trees. And on the other side of our apartment, there are it's like a mini woodland, which sounds lovely, but there is a main road behind there. But, but you know, you can't see the main road. It's like... It's, it's a classic like, British thing, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you don't see the road. It's there. You see all the lovely trees. So I was like, I want to know what these trees are and what, you know, and what... And I got into... I then started looking into the folklore of trees and blah, blah, blah. So I had this tiny little side project that didn't really go anywhere. And I wrote several little short stories about trees and based on tree folklore and I don't think I'll ever do anything with them it was literally just for me just to stretch that muscle and because I kind of I I, I kind of I need to write otherwise I, I, I don't know what I'm doing in my life if I'm not writing I don't it's like you know I, I, what is there other than that you know so so yeah so I just wrote these little stories one of them did get published in um a woman's magazine here which was nice but I I don't plan on doing anything with them they're they're literally just for the joy of being immersed in in something again we were talking about being immersed in things it was just really I needed to be immersed in something and trees you know they're always there they're not they're not affected by the pandemic so I could go with that. That was the strange thing about early pandemic time in England. So for all our Australian listeners, we were in lockdown, proper lockdown, not what Australians thought lockdown was, from the 23rd of March. Yeah. And so for you, was that when you started shielding? I was much before that. Um, I, I decided to, on my last hospital appointment, because I was, it's a long story, but I was changing all my drugs for my rheumatoid arthritis and I had these bad reactions to the drugs, which meant that I was sort of extra vulnerable because my white blood count went down, which means that you're really, really vulnerable to infection. So that was all happening at the beginning of March and all this kind of stuff was sort of really starting to happen. And I thought to myself, you know what, I'm writing, I've got my little office here. I'm very, very lucky at the moment to be able to support myself with writing. I don't know how long that will last, but at least for now I can do it. So I just thought, I'll just like put myself in that room and and write. Um, Although I was starting to find it difficult so I actually started shielding probably the second week in March so probably a week or two before everybody else yeah but what was amazing so we were allowed if you weren't shielding you're allowed outside for an hour a day to exercise and what was amazing for me coming from a place that doesn't really have seasons was seeing the blossom on the trees and Every single walk we did, every few days, the trees and the park would change so dramatically. And 
for me, like growing up somewhere that does not have seasons, that does not have trees that drop their leaves at all, it was absolute wonder to see that. And it was this absolute beauty. And it was this constant reminder that the the world is continuing and life goes on and it will continue even though we all feel like the world is ending a little bit. So it was really lovely to be able to walk outside and to see those trees and to start to see the signs of life a little bit again. And it was this moment for me of like, okay, yes, we might not be able to do anything at the moment, but I'm getting to experience this beauty every day, which sounds so like, pretentious no but honestly I thought that the only trees that had blossom on them were like the cherry blossoms in Japan I had no idea that literally almost every tree gets blossom on it in spring in England and I just it blew my mind Mm. it was incredible and I think there, there was something so calming and reassuring about seeing that the world was continuing in yeah. that way. Obviously, when by the time this airs, it will be September, but at the moment we're recording it on the last day of July. So are you still shielding? No, I'm not. I mean, NHS guidelines changed anyway, sort of halfway through lockdown. So I didn't have to, as far as the guidelines were concerned, keep shielding. But I spoke to my consultant and I said, look, I'm really anxious about going out because I've been I've been like shielding for the past like two months and now I'm told I don't have to anymore and yet my condition's the same and the drugs I'm taking are the same and she went well yeah I can only give you official guidelines but if I were you I'd just continue doing what you're doing so I did I didn't go out but it's you know it's really difficult because it gives you such it gives you such anxiety and my anxiety levels went really high and I kind of I, I kind of got a taste of agoraphobia, if you like, and um, I'm I'm still sort of working on that now. Um, so I'm going out for walks now, um, literally just out for walks. I'm I I I I just am far too nervous to go into shops or cafes or anything like that, or to meet friends. I haven't met any friends or anything. Only on over Zoom. I'm not physically doing it, and I know I sound like such a wuss, and it sounds. You know, I I don't like hearing myself talk about it, but it's just my anxiety levels because of the shielding and because I don't I don't trust what we're being told as well. I guess has a lot to do with it. My anxiety levels have just gone mental. It's just crazy. So I'm working on it, and I'm little by little doing more walks and things like that, and we'll and we'll see where we're going because of course Manchester's in lockdown again now. We'll go not proper lockdown, but restrictions are coming back. So. But I do think it's going to be like this for years. So we're going to have to learn to live with it. I'm going to have to learn to cope with it and to live in some way or another, you know. And I think we all, in our individual ways, you know, experience it slightly differently. And we're all going to have to, because it's not going anywhere. And, and yeah, it, it may be years. It may be. Who knows? But we've got to get on with our lives, right? And we've got to, we've got to do stuff and live. So, yeah. Yeah. I agree. I think that's something that changed for me is that like sort of when it all started, I was like, this is like a blip and we'll just all do nothing for a little time. And then somewhere maybe in June or something, it switched and I was like, okay, enough's enough. We've got to keep going on with everything. And like, that's when we started planning to do more stuff with this podcast. And I 
I mean, in Sydney, it's nowhere near as bad as it has been in the UK. But even I go up and down like every week with, oh, God, I don't want to go to a cafe or whatever this weekend. But I went to a wedding last weekend. It's just (laughs) up and down and I can't make up my mind. Yeah. I think also looking for things in the everyday to get excited about and joyful about um, is, is I found helpful. Just little things like, I mean... I mean, my husband and I have got really unhealthy over the last few months as well, you know. But, you know, so, I mean, I don't go to the shops. We don't go to the shops. We get all our stuff delivered. But it's things like we get extra biscuits delivered now. And we, I have to admit, we're drinking a little bit more Prosecco than we used to because... We started getting really fancy gin. Yeah, fancy gin. Yeah, fancy gin. I'm baking myself like cakes and muffins and biscuits and things almost every weekend and then eating all of it by the middle of the week like just... oh yeah my pandemic purchases are crazy I bought a new record player <laughs> like I need a new record player <laughs> I'm gonna buy a new record player it was crazy I mean all online obviously because I'm not going out that yeah. door you know so it's like I bought a new Mac I bought a new computer I mean oh it's crazy I mean I, I can't afford to do any of this by the way it's just like I don't have the, the means to really do this but you know it's just like oh I'll think about that later but it's just mm-hmm. finding the joy and the little things um to get excited about every day I think which is not always easy to do don't get me wrong I don't find it easy but I think that's where we have to go for the moment because we're living day to day aren't we exactly the light in every day there's something um thank you so much for your time today it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you can you let us know where people can find you online so um I'm on twitter uh, um that's at Nydia Maidavair. Nydia is N-Y-D-I-A. Um, I'm on Instagram, Nydia Maidavair. And I have a, a writer's Facebook page as well, which is just Nydia Heatherington Writer. Um, I don't really use it very much though, you know. So and I'm not really a big social media person, but you know. You're there. I'm there. There's the odd picture of my feet on the balcony on Instagram and, you know, a glass of Prosecco usually, you know, or, or you know, maybe Thank you for listening to Better Words. You can chat to us on Instagram at Better Words Pod. And follow me, Michelle, at Unfinished Bookshelf. And me, Caitlin, at Just a Bookish Babe. If you liked this episode, please share it with a book-loving friend and leave a rating or review.